Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what we can do to treat our conditions to live more fulfilling lives. If you have questions, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, or are just looking to chat about hypermobility, feel free to reach out at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. Today, our guest is Donna Sullivan, a patient advocate of the wonderful organization called TCAP, the Coalition Against Pediatric Pain. Donna is a graduate of Providence College and has worked for more than two decades in media, communications, and marketing with some of the world's biggest brands. Donna uses her skills to help TCAP raise awareness of the needs of children living with complex pain. Donna and her husband have three children diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, POTS, and Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. Donna does incredible work, and her goal is to give voice to the real struggles that complex pain families face in trying to get experienced care and effective treatment. Donna, hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So let's start back at the beginning. How did you first learn about hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? That is a very long answer, but I will just summarize it by saying back in 2010, um, I had three children and my oldest was having all sorts of kind of quirky, seemingly unrelated medical things going on. And one of them was scoliosis. She did not respond to bracing. And we did this thing called uh, straw therapy, trying to use physical therapy to straighten her spine. And she just kept getting worse, becoming deformed, having more pain. So after getting three uh, medical opinions, we decided that it was worth trying um, spinal fusion to try to straighten her curve. So after that surgery, um, she came out with higher pain, which initially we thought was maybe just a response to the surgery. But as the time went on and she continued to be debilitated, um, we discovered that she had um, a very flexible spine because her fusion started to actually move and you could see it on x-ray. Wow, that must have been incredibly difficult. It was one of these things where, you know, her surgeon kind of said, you know, you are kind of bendy, you are kind of flexible. And my husband and I at the time thought that was a good thing. Oh, good, she's flexible. You know, she's going to have a good outcome. And when he initially went into that surgery, his plan was to do a, a longer fusion. And I remember it so clearly. He came out and he said to me, wow, you know, her collagen is fascinating. She she kind of reminds me of someone with osteogenesis imperfecta, um, which I thought was kind of a funny thing to say because my daughter was quite tall for her age, and I knew a family with that condition, and I knew their daughter was of short stature. And um, yeah, so he said, you know, it's like it's like a, a lie. Um, I was able to get such a good correction that I didn't have to fuse her as much as I thought we did we would need to. Um, you know, she's going to be fine. So we thought that was a good thing until you know six months, seven months later when we started to watch the fusion um, move. So that was kind of our first introduction to your daughter is, is, is hypermobile. But back in 2010, nobody really knew a lot about what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, Ellis Danler certainly was not on anybody's radar, nor were the um, awareness of kind of the constellation of comorbid conditions that go along with Ellis Danler syndrome. So, you know, with my daughter, we went into rehab, uh, pediatric pain rehab, which that type of a program was also kind of in its infancy. And I remember thinking it's kind of a, a last, you know, last stop kind of place. 
um, when you're living with a medical condition that's so painful that it's affecting your function, you know, the only way out is through. So, you know, in this program, we were trying to help her push through her pain and, and be very physical. And a lot of it was kind of a boot camp approach. You know, we're going to strengthen your body, strengthen your body. Well, as we now know, you know, that's not always the best approach for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she would be dizzy and, and, and feel faint. And they would say, oh, it's anxiety. And, you know, I remember one time I was there and she's like, mom, I feel like my knee is popping out my knee. And, and one of the doctors looked at me and said, oh, yeah, we've had other kids say that, too. You know, it's OK. She's fine. Just keep going. <sighs> um, you know, looking back now, um, you know, I, re- I recognize that those providers were doing the best they could with the information they had at the time. Mm-hmm. But for a child like my daughter, um, it, it was traumatizing mm-hmm. because, you know, she was feeling what she was feeling within her body. Uh, but she was in a program where she wasn't really able to talk about it or express it. And, and it certainly wasn't being acknowledged. Um, so because that experience did not go well for us, um, it kind of put us in a place where, you know, we felt like failures. Um, you know, we went through the program and she's better, but she's not really better. She's, she's not doing well. And, and now she needs a second major surgery, um, a bigger fusion. And fortunately for me, I met a group of moms who also had children who had gone through the same pain program at the time, um, whose kids also didn't seem to be getting better um, in the way that you would think. And, and funny enough, over time, all these kids have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. They all have connective tissue uh, issues. But, you know, again, back then, it just wasn't on anyone's radar. So it wasn't until two years later um, when we finally had a, you know, we went through genetics, which, as you know, takes a lot of time. And they talked to us about this looks like a connective tissue condition. You know, I told them what the doctor had said about her collagen being so flexible in, in OI. And they explained to me that there is a crossover gene. Um, my kids do not have that, but I thought that was interesting. Um, but that's how we got the diagnosis eventually of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Now, an interesting point that came with that was, okay, you have this condition. Um, but this is what it means. And I think it's two different things. You know, it's one thing to say you have this condition and this is how you manage it, or this is who you go see for it. Um, but that's not the case with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, especially back then. Mm-hmm. It was, well, you have this condition, you know, good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was an interesting time. And I think if I hadn't been fortunate enough to have met other families navigating the same space where we could kind of share information about doctors that you saw that helped or at least understood a little bit or at least even just believed your child um you know i don't think my kids would have fared as well as they did um and we had a pretty traumatic rocky road with unfortunate medical misdiagnosis but even you know i I still look back and i think to myself if you know i plugged in early i was able to plug in early um and understand that being bendy can have a downside um, at a time when, you know, not a lot of medical professionals necessarily did. And it's funny because one of the things I would do, you know, she needed to have a second spinal fusion now. And we were very nervous about it because the last thing you want to do is, is more surgery on your child. Um, So we got, you know, we went and got a couple of opinions again. And I would ask the doctors, you know, how many Ehlers-Danlers or connective tissue people do you see? And they'd say, Oh, it's rare you know, maybe one or two a year, you know, we now know that that's not true. And, and back then I knew it wasn't true. Um, 
they had told me originally it was one in 200,000. Now we know it's closer to one in 500, um, although it's a variant condition with mm-hmm. all kinds of um, types. Mm-hmm. But yeah, back then it was just, it was not known. Um, so I always kind of would ask that question and be interested at the response. And then I would tell them, you know, I think you're seeing a lot more. You might not be be recognizing it, which, you know, doesn't always go over well. <laughs> sometimes it's well received. Sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a mom, I just wanted to open eyes so that other kids didn't have the, the rough diagnostic journey um, that we did. Yeah. And it's so amazing that you were able to connect with these other parents dealing with this at the time, what was seen as kind of a mystery. And I think it's it's something I have picked up on in the community that there there really is a sense of, of kind of coming together um, to try to figure these things out. And I think that's amazing that you were able to find that support. Absolutely. It makes sense that that made this difficult condition more, more tolerable and, and more bearable. And kudos to you for trying to advocate. And I think every little bit helps to some extent, although you're right, some providers are definitely more receptive to hearing about it than others, which is tricky. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to double back on the support thing, I think one of the biggest things finding other families did, and it's actually a huge part of TCAP's mission is, you know, it provides validation for kids. And a lot of times when these kids don't know someone else like them, or don't have a friend or know someone that understands them, it can really cause a lot of emotional harm. So, you know, I think it helps strengthen the kids and my own children by just being able to say, we're not alone. You know, here's five, six other families. And, you know, we spent months and months and months in hospitals. We were averaging seven to 13 weeks a year um, between my daughter and my son's condition, my son's situation. And just to be able to say, okay, you know, I'm going to text the mamas and put this up, you know, in a a patient group and see what comes back. And it's like, oh, this happened to so-and-so, this happened to so-and-so, this happened to so-and-so, you know, you're okay, you're going to be okay. This is okay. And I think that was the benefit, um, a huge benefit of plugging in with other families. Definitely. That's something that I've noticed as well. It's incredibly liberating to be able to speak openly with people who intuitively understand what you're going through. Unfortunately, that can be hard to come by in the general population, especially with the lack of awareness being what it is. It's I know it's a complicated subject, but it's one of the reasons why I personally believe that as early of a diagnosis as is practicable and reasonable for the children and families at issue is so important because I've spoken to people who are diagnosed from a younger age versus the people that are diagnosed later in life. Um, And it does seem like many of the people diagnosed earlier are able to um, come to terms with it and sort of live within their limitations, not to say in any means that it's a walk in the park to be diagnosed earlier in life. It certainly brings its own challenges and fitting in at school and having to get accommodations and all of that. It certainly seems to be helpful to at least have a framework to be thinking about these symptoms, which can often look, as you remarked, very unconnected and, and sort of mysterious. So at least having a diagnosis and kind of a, a baseline of people you can go to for support, ask for information, or even just have them listen 
and knowing that you have this connective tissue difference that can manifest in all these different ways seems to be seems to be helpful in many instances. And your organization does absolutely incredible work on some of the most difficult issues facing the EDS and hypermobility community. Can you tell our listeners about how the Coalition Against Pediatric Pain was formed, what it does, and what it sees as its mission? Sure. So back in 2010, we actually just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. Uh, TCAP came together. And as I said, it was a couple of moms who had met in, in a hospital pediatric pain program in Boston. They recognized their kids had a lot of similarities, and they really just formed more for support, right? Let's just take care of our kids together and, and keep kind of cheering at each other along. Uh, but over time, they started to realize that, you know, there wasn't a lot of understanding um, what happens when these kids are missing school because of pain. You know, there's not a lot of organizations. There's no organizations, actually, at the time for children living with chronic pain and complex pain, and nobody was really talking about it. So they formed the um, nonprofit. And like I said, these early moms um, were tremendous. They would share information. They would start taking lists of doctors and start trying to put together um, understanding of what they were seeing in their own kids. And as families started to come into the TCAP fold, the number of um, doctors that were having awareness of connective tissue and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome started to grow. So they started with a mission to support families and children living with complex pain. And the way it looked back then was, first, we're going to educate people about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, because um, like I said, nobody was doing it at that time. So they started putting up you know, a website and talking about connective tissue. These, when I talk about grassroots, I mean, Sue Pinkham, who is the founder, she actually runs it still today, um, is one of the founders runs yard sales. She was like famous for yard sales <laughs> and is, you know, does everything she can, you know, collects cans, whatever she can to raise money to help support kids. She's a tremendous lady. And um, they would have yard sales and they would raise money. Um, they were working with a group called the RSDSA, which is Jim Broach. They support people living with complex regional pain syndrome, uh, which seems to have a lot of overlap with connective tissue. So they were kind of trying to fight, you know, they, they were originally going to be mothers against pain, but I guess they, they didn't love that that acronym. So they started working with RSDSA for CRPS, and then they realized no one's doing Ehlers-Danlers. So um, they expanded into it. And they would start by educating. They would start by sending gifts and cards just to try to raise the spirits of the kids who are living with pain. They would host events like game nights to try to bring the kids together and just try to really keep people going mentally and emotionally and provide support. They, as I shared with you, started really pioneering, probably around 2012. They had a think tank where they brought in doctors um, from other places. Uh, many of these doctors have gone on to be um, pioneers in Ellis Standlers, including Dr. Chopra, Dr. Maitland. Um, there's a whole crew of them that had worked with TCAP very early on. They would start having these education seminars, and that's kind of how it started. So over time, families started to find us when they had children that live with complex pain. And, you know, again, we're a nonprofit. We, we're not funded. The running joke is um, we, we do things to help other people when we're not in our own, um, you know, problems with our own families. <laughs> when our own worlds aren't on fire, we can support and be helpful. And, and that's what we try to do. Um, we also run a summer camp for kids living in complex pain. It was the first pain, pediatric pain camp that we founded back in, I think it was 2015, which brought together kids with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and complex pain to one place. And it was truly transformative to see these kids 
responding to each other and understanding, gee, you can be in a wheelchair today and you could be walking tomorrow and I'm not going to question it, you know? So that's, so that's kind of what we did. So what kind of whatever the needs are, the families call us and we try to help plug them into resources. We try to plug them into services and we just try to provide support and keep them going emotionally. That's so wonderful and so critically important. And it's, it's just so inspiring to hear of this kind of grassroots effort and like the yard sales and the like sending gifts to the children to keep up their spirits and connecting kids with this camp. It's just such critically important work and a topic that not a lot of people have been willing to take on. It's such a, a taboo topic because no one wants to think about children being in pain, but that certainly doesn't, not thinking about issues like this doesn't really help to move the ball forward in any way. So it's absolutely wonderful what you what you and your organization have been able to do. And from your years of experience working in this space and raising three children with Ehlers-Danlos, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about pediatric? Before I get into that, I would like to just say that I think one of the biggest misconceptions, well, I guess I could type this in, one of the biggest misconceptions about pediatric pain um, is that it's something that has support in a, in a solution. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that we found in our organization early on is that the level of isolation, uh, feeling like an outsider because you're a high access user of the medical system that doesn't necessarily understand your condition and quite frankly, doesn't want to treat it. Um, chronic pain is really a complicated problem anyways, especially in this country with the opioid backlash. And there's a lot of suffering um, because of it. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of refer to pain as the third rail of medicine. You know, doctors know you have it, but they don't necessarily want to touch it because there may or may not be a lot they can do. So a lot of the kids and the families that we work with, um, you know, it's, I used to joke and say, I feel like we live on the island of misfit toys oh. from, um, from that Christmas mm-hmm. special because it just felt like these kids don't fit in. And one of the things that would be whispered among parents, which is truly heartbreaking and is true, is, you know, my child has had, you know, 21 surgeries. My child is always in the hospital. My child is, but, but is still in the margins of medicine. Um, if my child had cancer, you know, the school would be supporting her and they would be helping us educate her. And instead, we're always having to defend why my child missed school this week or why, you know, we were here, you know, for a month and then gone for a month. It's a very different kind of road to navigate when pain is one of your primary symptoms. So, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions in in the general population. But I think particularly when it comes to kids, um, people think they're young. So you can't possibly be that sick. You don't look sick. You can't possibly have that much pain. You know, pain is one of those funny subjective things that, you know, until you have it, (laughs) anyone else's pain is, you know, probably not that bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we're, we're working with kids like my son's condition, complex regional pain syndrome. It ranks higher on the McGill pain scale than amputation or childbirth. And a lot of these kids with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome seem to have issues with CRPS. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it's not a tied comorbid condition yet. Um, you know, I, I actually joke when I first plugged into TCAP, um, which I guess was around 2011. They were probably almost a year in. You know, the moms would compare notes and say, huh, all these kids seem to have, you know, some kind of orthopedic pain. Things are dislocating. They're all dizzy. They all seem to be anxious. A lot of them are really smart. Not that we're biased, but we are Mm -hmm. because they're our kids, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are very reactive, very sensitive. So they're having rashes and 
all these problems. And, you know, it, it's been very interesting to see over time how all these things have come to fruition. Um, and a lot of them are now being studied and, and documented as comorbid conditions, um, which I think says a lot about real world data. So in terms of kind of where I'm going with that is I just think there's so many misconceptions around kind of how you judge people when you don't understand what's in front of you. Uh, and I think people tend to do that in general, but especially in the medical community, you know, doctors are taught to kind of come in and, and make a quick assessment. You know, the insurance companies only give them 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you come in and you're a hot mess and you've got 500 symptoms across multiple body systems, you know, some of them just glaze over mm -hmm. and, and that does have an impact on a patient, on a person, and especially as a child. Absolutely. Those kinds of observations of people living with these conditions and loved ones and caregivers of people living with these conditions are so important. And it's unfortunate that I guess the system is structured in such a way that that kind of real world evidence has not traditionally carried nearly the kind of weight as, you know, randomly controlled peer reviewed literature. And yet, you know, obviously, that's, it's a very rich source of information. And you, you mentioned a moment ago, kind of a description of what a lot of these children in this group that you were talking about, kind of related features and having these orthopedic issues and the, the sensitivities and also being very smart, sort of quick. That's definitely something I've picked up on in interacting with a lot of hypermobile people. And it's one of the things that's a, a bit kind of unfortunate to me. And again, I understand the reason for it, you know, the different providers and researchers in their own specialties tend to look at these issues through their lens and through their training. And so we see a lot of literature coming out talking Absolutely. about how there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of mental health, you know, type conditions that occur with these conditions. But what I don't see represented nearly as much is the intelligence, the creativity, the compassion, the collaboration, the curiosity. So it's kind of, to, to me, those things are interrelated. I mean, being more sensitive also carries with it some of these great traits, these sort of superpowers that we all um, kind of observe being in this hypermobile community. And it's unfortunate that the story often focuses on sort of the behavioral manifestations that are difficult for others to understand. And I, I really respect Dr. Chopra for speaking out on this issue. He did a great interview with Karina Sturm of Chronic Pain Partners, uh, EDS Awareness, John Furman's organization, where mm -hmm. he talked about this literature that focuses on sort of the psychological, psychiatric aspects of this condition. And he talked about how, well, if your joints are popping out, of course, you're going to, you know, feel some discomfort. And so but attributing that to being primarily psychological is, you know, not supported by the data that's out there. And, and it's not looking at sort of this picture in totality. And I, I really wish there would be whether it's research or more just like representation, what your group is doing um, to reach sort of the forefront, the general population about this issue that it's it's not so kind of monolithic as it's been presented. Absolutely, 100%. And I think one of the things that, you know, is not really taught in medical school, um, funny enough, I've, I've channeled some of my experience into working with a group in New Jersey called Pathways to Trust. They're a tremendous organization that educates medical students about underserved populations and bias in medicine. We talk a lot about DEI issues. 
And one of the exercises that we do is we talk about, you know, what did it take to get that patient into your appointment? You know, people don't think about that. You know, my son, for example, was living in high pain and every single bump in the road was agony for him. We had to carry him to the car to get him to a doctor's appointment. He would feel every bump and we would get him in there. We'd get in the elevator. And if people came by and came close to the wheelchair, you know, he had a neuropathic leg, um, it would set off high pain. So he'd be afraid if someone's going to come close to him in the, in the elevators at the hospitals, which are completely unavoidable. And then you'd finally get into the room and you'd wait. And then you'd have a, you know, a doctor come in and, and all that stress and all that pain that it took to get there, you know, probably does show on his face and how he interacts. Um, but people don't always think about the situational sources mm-hmm. um, sometimes for some of the behaviors, or the responses that they see. Yes, that's a very important point that kind of goes back to this research that, you know, there's been findings that, you know, people have more anxiety and more depression and things like that. But the question to me is always, well, why? And when you look at people living with these conditions and the extra amount of time it takes for us to get things diagnosed, because like you mentioned earlier, there's kind of this notion that, well, you look good, so you should feel as good as you look, even though we know that's not certainly not always the case. Yeah, it, being able to put in context what's going on is really important. And so it's it's great that there are organizations like that trying to kind of clue doctors into the larger context that they're operating within, especially when it comes to some of these conditions that haven't been fully kind of fleshed out with research and, you know, really getting to the bottom of the mechanisms. Although there is some very interesting research that's starting to come out, getting more at sort of the mechanisms and and what really is going on here. But it's a a very slow process for sure. Right, right. And as as you know, it's a lifetime for children, right? People talk about 10 to 12 years for diagnosis. Well, that's a lifetime if you're 12. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the excellent Demler paper that came out talked about how for some patients, I think it's like 25% of patients, the time to diagnosis is something like 20 or 24 years, something like that. I mean, so it's this hugely under-recognized issue. And yet even sort of the numbers that are diagnosed are becoming very significant at that, at this point. And I'm hearing that from, you know, others who are kind of tracking this issue and trying to get a handle on it. Yeah, it's it's this double-edged sword effect because there has been more awareness in the news lately. There's been more discussion of Ehlers-Danlos and POTS in sort of national media. The, the sort of full story in the full context um, is is still yet to emerge and is kind of slow going. Yeah, and I apologize if I took you way off track here because I know that wasn't even the purpose. You know, you wanted to talk to me about some storytelling um, oh, <laughs> to no, raise no. awareness. And and so in your personal experience, are there any particularly effective ways of treating pediatric pain that seem to work for a significant number of patients? Or is this just completely individual? Like, do you have any kind of tips to share with the community or listeners out there who might be struggling to find appropriate treatments? Um, Absolutely. I mean, obviously, pain is very personal. um, And there's so many different factors and medical conditions and, and reasons for it. But, you know, it has been shown that a multidisciplinary approach to pain is really important. People sometimes feel like they feel discounted because someone is saying, well, it's in your brain. The pain is in your brain, which was taught to us for a long time. Um, But the fact is the mind and the body are connected. So, you know, I think finding good pain management, um, a physician that can support you is paramount. 
finding a counselor or just someone you can talk about what it is like to be a person living with chronic pain and some of the challenges it creates, you know, things like, do I go to the prom? Because if I do, I know I'm going to pay for it for a week. Um, Counseling can be very helpful, as well as a lot of alternative therapies, things like mind meditation. Um, There's so many huge things on the horizon right now with neuroscience for kids. Um, I'm actually working with a great organization that does a, a video game that helps people with pain to help kind of modulate pain pathways, pain relief pathways naturally. So I think, you know, when you have pain, it's just important to kind of take as many tools as you can put in your toolbox. You know, music for my son has been a great lifesaver for him and kind of an escape from his physical pain. Yeah, I I think just, you know, get yourself the support to live this life because this life is not easy. And it's unpredictable and it can change from day to day. And the more kind of things you can do that, that help you, you know, whether it's an Epsom soak bath or, you know, using an infrared heating pad, try as many things as you can until you find something that works and don't give up hope. That's great advice. And we'll include a link to the TCAP website for anyone who wants to, you know, check out the organization, try to sort of get connected and, and plugged in. But yeah, it's it's great to kind of build a toolkit and try different things. I also, I find infrared heating mats and Epsom salt baths to be extremely helpful as well. Those are great tips. What would you most like the world to know when it comes to pediatric pain particularly in complex conditions like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and the hypermobility conditions? (sighs) That's a loaded question. What I see from my own family's experience and, and a lot of the families we service is that pain can sometimes put people in a box. Uh, when you go to see a physician and they hear you have pain, they may or may not be able to maintain the level of kind of medical objectivity uh, that you sometimes need. So it's easy to say, Oh, you have Ehlers-Danlos, you have pain. Well, actually, you know, you have a fracture in your finger. <laughs> so I think that's probably one of the biggest things is, you know, pain is, is a problem. It's a massive problem. Um, it's a symptom, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't always look for the source and that it's important to always continue to look for the source. Um, and oftentimes there's more than one source. You know, um, a lot of times you might have people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, we have biomechanical pain, right? Because of subluxations or shifts in our posture or our body formation. So that's kind of a daily assault on the body that's creating pain, right? But you all, that also doesn't mean you can't have an acute situation. And you just wouldn't want to see the acute problem kind of overlooked because they just assume, oh, you have EDS, you have chronic pain. That's a great point. And I think that's a big issue in the community that once you're associated with having chronic pain, a lot can get written off as being associated with that chronic condition. And yet it's so important, like you say, to focus on the specifics of the situation. And certainly you can have many acute pains, injuries, conditions, illnesses on top of the chronic underlying ones as well. Yeah, absolutely. So so TCAP does a lot of great work. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the specific projects you're working on to raise awareness and tackle these issues related to pediatric pain? So ooh, that's a good, great, great, great question. Thank you for that question. TCAP has always been, in my mind, a little bit at the forefront. I talked about our mission initially being to educate. Uh, That's a mission that we no longer need to have. And we've actually taken a lot of the education stuff off of our website because there's so so many better sources now and so many people that are educating better than we're able to. Our mission has shifted a lot in terms of support. And one of the areas um, that I have been very involved with is a 
problem or a challenge that people have with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome that, that is not easy to talk about, um, and like the condition itself, um, you know, has a little bit of, of controversy. But one of the things that started back in 2014 is we started having families who had EDS come to us and say, you know, I'm being turned over to Child Protective Services. Um, my doctors don't believe there's anything wrong with my daughter, or maybe it's the school doesn't believe there's anything wrong, and they're having us investigated. And Child Protective Services would come in and, you know, put the family through that process, which, you know, is, is very concerning. And in some cases, they would take custody of the kids. Um, they would remove the children from the home, and they would accuse the parents of medically, what they call medical child abuse or over-medicalizing their children, so looking for something that's not there or creating symptoms. When we first started getting these cases, you know, there's, there's nothing more important than protecting children. You know, I would kind of know some of the families and just be kind of surprised, like, well, why are they getting flagged? You know, how is this happening? But as it started happening more and more, you know, we, we started to see a trend. And when we started that summer camp years ago, and I'll never forget this, we had 35 families in the room and one of the families had just gotten a call that they were being investigated. And as the mom was talking about it, other mothers started coming forward saying, yes, that happened to us too. That happened to us. So I kind of looked at one, you know, Sue Pinkham and said, well, how many other families have had this? And a bunch of hands went up. And, and it really kind of showed me that, you know, here's families from different states. They all have one thing in common. And, and these families are now not only having kind of the injury of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and trying to get care for their kids, which is already a struggle. But now they have the insult of being challenged, you know, are you fit as a parent? And, and even worse, being accused of, of harming your child. So, you know, our organizations found ourselves supporting more and more of these families. And, and what do you do in a situation like this, right? There's not a lot you can do. You can listen you can hold hands. Over time, we started to, to get more and more cases. So we started meeting attorneys who knew a lot about the law and kind of what are the rights as a parent to make your child's medical decisions. I consider this what I call a no-fault problem and that it's a systemic issue. And it's really a combination. It's very complicated, but it's a lack of awareness of rare disease. It's a lack of process and it's a lack of oversight. So I don't want anyone to think that we're here pointing fingers. In 2013, child abuse physicians, that position was created. And um, the doctors who do that kind of work, you know, my heart goes out to them because there's, there's nothing more important in the world than protecting children. And they're willingly facing some really dark, ugly, horrible, tragic cases. Uh, but unfortunately, training for that position does not include awareness of rare disease. They're not rare disease specialists. And the way the child protective teams operate in hospitals is that they have a lot of power and they have the ability to overrule specialists. So we've had a lot of cases, you know, across the country where you will have specialists in a hospital who are treating a child for a condition and a child protective doctor in their own hospital saying that child does not have, you know, for example, a mitochondrial disorder. That seems to be one of the bigger ones that seems to get a lot of flags. So it's so it's interesting that when these families get flagged and they're put into this process, well, now they're being thrown into a system, child protective system, that is not a medical system. So CPS is not really equipped to sort out these cases. And, and what's even worse is the legal system isn't either. So what we see is, you know, especially in cases where children have been removed from the home, it's a long process. 
and there's a lot of trauma. And it's one of these cases where when you're accused, you're guilty before you're, before you're innocent. So parents and, and moms in particular um, are going through a lot of, a lot of trauma. And these cases can go on on forever. And a lot of times these families don't have the money to hire attorneys. It's very hard to find attorneys sometimes who understand all the complexities of medical issues. And, and a new trend that we're seeing, um, which is really surprising, is you will have patients that come in where, and, and this happened, you know, a film just came out, the Justina Pelletier case. For those who, who aren't aware of the Justina Pelletier story, she was a young girl in Boston who was treated at Tufts Medical for mitochondrial disease. And when her gastroenterologist moved over to Boston Children's, she went there for care and Boston Children's decided she didn't have mitochondrial disease. And so they took custody of her and it, it, it turned into a giant legal battle. And this child was in custody for 18 months. Um, and the family and the child, who I know personally, are severely traumatized, as, as they should be, by that experience. So that's an area that TCAP never had any you know, interest in going into. <laughs> Clearly, it's not a... a, a it's it's a dark area, mm-hmm. but it's a necessary area because we were seeing these really good families ripped apart because they basically fell into kind of a spider web of faults in our system. You know, you have your over special. You know, our system is highly specialized, so you're seeing different specialists. So if communication between the specialists is left to the parent, you know, communication may or may not go well. One of the other challenges is when you look at the definition of medical child abuse and what doctors are told to look for, a lot of the things are very similar to what you see in a child that has rare disease. So for example, they look for parents who have a lot of medical knowledge, who are very comfortable talking to doctors and medical people, who don't seem relieved when you're told a test result comes back negative. Well, a lot of times that might be because your child is suffering, having symptoms, and you feel like you don't have an answer. But it's really kind of an overlap of behaviors that are also found in rare disease parents that they look at and they've kind of pathologized as a sign of deceit or intent. Because when you look at the definition, so just to back up really quickly, and I know you're a lawyer, so you'll appreciate this. Um, Maxine Eichner, who's done a lot of writing on this topic, she's an attorney out of UNC, um, and she's written for the New York Times and other, you know, she just came out with another paper about this kind of, I think she called it when helping hands harm. And she talks about how the, the very language is part of the problem, because the definition of medical child abuse is a very broad and vague definition. And the gentleman who first talked about it in 1940s, he was a, a, a scholar out of Yale, kind of warn the medical community about using that type of language when you're talking about neglect and abuse. And the very name itself has even changed over the years. Um, Parents were accused of having Munchausen by proxy, which means the very definition talks about deceit, that you're trying to deceive doctors or you're trying to deceive by talking about symptoms that aren't there. It was then changed to, um, they talk a lot about conversion disorder, they talk a lot about somatoform, they talk a lot about, now they call it factitious disorder imposed on another you know, the language keeps changing, Mm -hmm. which kind of makes it a bit of a moving target. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, what we're seeing on our patient group, and it's not just our patient group, we're in contact with a lot of rare disease patient groups. There's a lot of groups that now work to support families when this happens to them. But one of the things that, you know, we recognize is that the parents aren't really doing anything wrong. They're listening to doctors, you know. So for example, I have this one case that, that completely dumbfounded me. It's two top institutions that are 
in disagreement over diagnosis and the child has had interventions and surgeries. Well, it wasn't the mom who was doing the surgery. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, you know, the family made a decision and yet, and yet oftentimes it's the mom. Um, we find a lot of single moms are targeted, which has always surprised me. And, and, and I think it's a problem of misogyny. I have to be honest. I think there is an element that people look at a mother's anxiety over their child's medical and look at that as sometimes as a negative thing. Oh, that mom's too anxious. Oh, that mom's causing this. You know, they're kind of blaming mothers for what's a very natural parenting response. And it's funny. People will say to me, well, why do you care so much about this issue? Did it ever happen to you and your family? I was very fortunate it didn't, although it's not to say that I wasn't probably looked at many times in my kid's medical journey with a different set of eyes. But when I talked about earlier how my daughter had had her spinal fusion and, and her spine moved and she needed more surgery, we had a lot of uncertain days, weeks, and months where nobody knew what was wrong with her. And you know, I consider myself a fairly educated, articulate person. And even though I would try to speak to doctors and advocate, you know, I could tell that I was kind of being put in the crazy box. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's no way your daughter didn't sleep for three nights. You know, she doesn't look like she's in that much pain. You know, another thing that we haven't talked about is the whole, you, you touched upon the neurodivergence in Ehlers-Danlers. You know, my daughter has a nonverbal learning disability. Her face wasn't always registering her emotion. And, and that was very clearly documented in her paperwork. You know, and I would say, well, she's in pain 24-7. If she looked like that all the time, what would it look like? But um, after a particularly difficult hospitalization, I went down to file a complaint with social work. And I remember sitting across from the guy, and this was early on in our journey. And he started asking me questions about what I do for a living. And I said, oh, I work in, you know, an advertising agency. I do medical marketing. And I could see his body relax. And he said, oh, okay, that explains it. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, that explains why you're so comfortable in medical settings. And that explains why you're so comfortable throwing around big medical terms and talking to doctors. And that's when I realized that there must have been something in my file mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. questioning you know, and, and was I comfortable in hospitals? No, but I was in them all the time, not because I wanted to be because we kept having surgery. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, as I kind of realized, okay, you know, this, this could even happen to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I talk about the families that we serve who get flagged, it may be surprising to hear that a large percentage of people are people who work in healthcare, physicians, nurses, because they're seen to have medical knowledge. So, you know, if nothing else, I think the biggest thing that needs to happen is there needs to be better training for child abuse physicians. There needs to be a a better review process and there needs to be legislative protection for parents because once you're investigated, you can't make medical decisions for your child. Once you lose custody, you know, you have zero rights over any of their medical treatment. And funny enough, Texas is the only state in the country right now that gives a parent an opportunity to get a second opinion from a outside source if they are accused. Um, no other state in the country can they do that yet. Wow. Um, yeah, the Pelletier family, Justina Pelletier's family, is trying to um, work on a piece of legislation called Justina's Law to try to give parents more protection in situations like this. But, um, but right now they're not there. 
That's incredibly disturbing. And and I've heard that before too. I saw an article a while ago where they had a little infographic and it was supposed to illustrate questions that parents could ask that, you know, could be suggestive of some abuse going on and sort of an insinuation about asking about conditions like Ehlers-Danlos and having medical knowledge. And it's just such a sad state of affairs because the vast majority of patients with these conditions are compelled to go out and research and learn on their own because there is so little information and some doctors are even misinformed about what Ehlers-Danlos and other rare conditions, like you mentioned, what they actually are and, and what how they present. And so, you know, in my own case, like I would definitely did not want to have any kind of medical knowledge, but after going through some instances of misdiagnosis, mistreatment, I felt compelled to read up and learn what is the appropriate standard of care, you know, what is the approach to treating this. And I met with a lot of resistance at at the outset when I was first diagnosed from doctors kind of giving me that sense of like, you know, just trust us, you shouldn't be looking into this on your own. And it's very sad to be in a position where you feel like you have to research to have the knowledge in the discussion for your treatment but then that that's something that can potentially be held against you as being some kind of pathologized, you know, psychiatric situation. And it's incredibly sad. And like in your instance, that person you were speaking to was looking for a reason why you were so knowledgeable about these things. You know, with with the internet, patients are able to go out and find the NIH clinical guidelines and, you know, good quality information you know, certainly not all information on the internet is created equal by any means. Um, and there are, you know, more legitimate sources and not, but it's very sad that many people are kind of put in a position of being forced to research these things and learn this information. Or like you said, medical providers themselves who have this information by virtue of their profession. And then that's something that can be held against someone that that strikes me as very deeply unfair, and not getting at the crux of the issue, which is, is this person receiving adequate care or not? And it's, you know, disturbing where you can have specialists with different opinions kind of battling it out. And if if different doctors can have a different perception on a situation, a lot of these things are, are very much still debatable, or there's different perspectives on them. So the idea that patients and parents in the situation wouldn't be able to be able to keep pushing for something that seems, you know, that fits with what their child is going through. It's just, ugh, it's, it's incredibly. When you, you actually just hit on, on the other big reason for this problem. You know, you talked about standards of care. What is the approach to treatment? Ellis Danlers has not had the luxury of having a cure or even a diagnostic test, let alone a standardized treatment plan. So I think that's part of kind of the maze that patients walk into sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, you choose, you know, medicine is still kind of, you know, a, a consumer transaction, right? You, you select doctors that you trust or think they have the ability to help you. And somewhere along the line, when you see multiple doctors, like say you have someone whose condition isn't well understood or is poorly understood, you know, it's not uncommon for people, especially nowadays, to get two or three opinions. And yet that also was pathologized. They, they, the term doctor shopping was used. And, and, you know, getting back to linguistics, a lot of this stuff is language, right? The idea of doctor shopping has a negative connotation. The idea of medical, people talk about medical kidnapping. I hate that term, but that's what they use when they talk about these cases. 
you know, I think words matter. And, you know, you were talking also not to backtrack, but you were saying how you had no intention about learning this much about any, you know, Ellis Taylor's and you certainly had probably no intention in your life. You didn't grow up and say, I'm going to do a podcast on this. Nope. Um, but yet we all, we also see that too, that there is a, you know, historically, um, and this also is thankfully changing, but people who would advocate and, and put up websites or put up posts or try to raise awareness, sometimes even that was kind of turned against you. And they would look at the mother and say, well, they're having secondary gain. You know, they're looking for attention. And so for that reason, you know, a lot of us, including myself, always kept a really low profile. And it's only been recently now that kind of, for whatever reason, the pendulum has thankfully shifted where the patient voice is now being recognized as a credible source. A lot of us are speaking up a little more broadly, I guess. Yeah, although it's still a very kind of divided time because as much as there has been this kind of increased awareness, people still bring to my attention posts that are going on on Reddit or Twitter where there there's clearly a segment of the medical profession that still does not believe that Ehlers-Danlos, mast cell, POTS, a lot of these related conditions are real. And I was shocked to to hear that talking to a top pediatric POTS specialist who said he confronts this issue a lot of people just not believing that POTS was real. And this was before the literature came out connecting POTS to long COVID. So hopefully that's changed a little bit. But I was shocked to hear that. I thought, well, what do they not think is real? Like the tilt table test? I mean, do you think people are faking that in some way? I mean, it's just kind of mind boggling the amount of resistance there is to these conditions still. I mean, I, I saw uh, someone posted a message that seemed like it was a physician saying, I think the triad of EDS, mast cell and POTS should be illegal. And a, another yeah. physician responded and said, well, what do you mean? Why? It was trying to kind of engage on this. And I, I'm not sure where the conversation went from there, but it's, it's just, it's very, it's a very divided time. It seems like in some ways the awareness is getting better, but there is still just so much resistance to appreciating the nature of these conditions. And I saw a presentation from one provider saying that you can recognize fibromyalgia patients. I think it was fibromyalgia he was talking about because by the end of the appointment, they hate you and you hate them. And I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Wow. Like, I right. mean, to be talking about an entire segment of the population, and I sort of wonder whether a lot of people diagnosed with fibromyalgia actually have connective tissue conditions or, you know, what's what actually is that kind of placeholder condition, so to speak, or this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Own. And it, it's funny you say that because I also think long COVID people are just undiagnosed EDS. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll be, I think time will once again tell, but I I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, not to go, um, I'm going to switch tax for a minute Mm -hmm. here and go in defense of doctors, Mm -hmm. because that's a lot of the work that I do at Pathways to Trust is trying to bring both sides. We try to bring both sides of the table together Mm -hmm. to solve these, um, these challenges. And, And, you know, what you're saying there is it's never, you know, people unfortunately become frustrated Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, can some people, you know, people are people. Mm-hmm. So you have doctors who can become more aggressive. You have patients that can become really difficult and aggressive. And I think that's why, if anything, it's more important than ever to have advocacy efforts to teach people how to navigate mm-hmm. in an effective and respectful way. But I think, you know, in the case of doctors, you know, when doctors don't believe or think, you know, the triad should be illegal, 
you know, it's it's not necessarily a reflection on the person as it is the, the system, right? So when you look at medicine, medicine is a slow burn. Mm-hmm. You have to watch it and study it and publish it and review it and re-review it and re-review it. And I just truly think that, you know, we live in a, an age of great discovery, but still not enough to, to understand what we're seeing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think medicine will catch up with Ellis Danler syndrome. It is just taking a very long time. Yep. And again, yeah, that's the sort of the ethos of this podcast too, is not to villainize or blame because I've known many doctors personally and socially, and I do really feel for them. I mean, the tremendous time pressure that's put on them, the amount that they're expected to know, it's really significant. And that's part of where I think it's sort of perplexing to me that despite the kind of numbers, especially with HEDS and hypermobility conditions appearing to be what they are, what little data we have, like the whale study from Demler et al. I think part of this issue is because this is still seen as a rare condition, even though as you know, many knowledgeable in the field have pointed out, it's it's really more rarely diagnosed than truly demographically rare. I think that is also sort of a confounding variable because I would think doctors are seeing more and more people with HEDS or EDS diagnoses, and then thinking, well, wait a minute, but I always learned this was rare. And so I and I've asked doctors this just out of curiosity, you know, kind of without the context, ask them cold, what do you think of when you learn that a condition is rare? And I've heard back multiple times, well, that means I don't have to worry about it. And that just makes my stomach drop and it makes my heart break. And and that's where I think getting, you know, a true prevalence study, I, I see that as one of the absolute most pressing issues in the community to highlight, you know, the true prevalence of of hypermobility and connective tissue conditions in general, and, you know, kind of working against that notion that these things are rare. And I, I think part of the issue, too, is that a lot of people with these conditions are sort of more functional or sort of are able to middle along and kind of manage symptoms, maybe in their youth and their younger years when they're able to bounce back more. But then there often is sort of a catalyzing event, like whether it's an infection or an injury that seems to kind of switch people over into this more um, dysfunctional state, you know, where there's more issues coming up. And so it's, it's tough because I, I bet a lot of hypermobile people, and I've seen for myself, a lot of hypermobile people are extremely, you know, they excel in their field. They're, they can be really sort of excellent, but then there can be these downturns that happen. And so it's, it seems of paramount importance to me to get out information about the true spectrum nature of this condition and for people to have, you know, as much information as is appropriate and as what they're seeking so that they can make decisions for their own life, you know, to whether they're going to engage in things that are more high risk, perhaps like football or skiing, or, you know, things that might put them at a higher risk of injury and being able to appreciate that. And for physicians to understand that, you know, a hypermobile person could look more or less functional on the outside, still have a lot of symptoms going on beneath the surface, but be kind of going along, you know, something may happen to them to change to make them more dysfunctional, and that that's not purely a psychological phenomenon, as it's often discussed. Right. And a lot of times you might see it's like a catastrophic injury, mm-hmm. or a period of immobilization, sometimes a surgery that can that can be the impetus for that. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, no, I completely agree with what you're saying 100%. So yeah, so as you know, you and I have kind of covered, there are a lot of challenges um, and things that happen to people as they're trying to navigate the healthcare system. Absolutely. On that note, what's on the horizon for TCAP's future? Are there any kind of projects you can give us a little sneak peek about? I would love to. I would absolutely love to. So as I mentioned, TCAP's mission has shifted a little bit. Um, We're focusing more on kind of supporting families and kids in particular. Um, And we do that through our Send a Smile program, where we send cards and gifts and just try to really hold people's hands when they're going through difficult times. We're running sometimes Lego building nights and other nights for the kids. And we have our summer camp coming up at the Center for Courageous Kids in Kentucky. We've been unable to have it the last two years due to COVID. So we're really looking forward to getting our families together um, and bringing these kids together. It's a family camp for just good old fashioned fun. We're not talking about pain. We're not talking about medical. We're literally just trying to give these kids fun, summer fun. But I think the biggest project that I'm involved with right now um, is on this topic that we were talking about with families who are being falsely accused of medical abuse. As I said, that's a topic that's been really hard to talk about because, um, you know, it's one of these things that you're guilty till proven innocent. But we had a situation probably about six years ago where we had a family that came to us for help and the mother... um, the family actually went and received medication for their child that was available in different parts of the country, uh, ketamine, which now is actually being really widely used. Mm-hmm. But at that time it wasn't, but the parents had resources and research and they went out of the country to get their child care. And when they came back, their child was taken by a pediatrician, a child abuse physician who since has been um, let go and has many, many, many families um, come out with stories of how their children were taken from this particular doctor, but the, this daughter was, this girl was taken. So she was placed in the hospital. And when they take them, they, they work to demedicalize them because they feel that these kids have so many layers of treatment and they want to kind of peel back all of them to see what's real and what's psychological. And this mother was so distraught. Um, she had come to one of my colleagues for help and um, she decided, well, if I'm the problem, I'm going to, I'm going to take myself out of the picture. And in one tragic, horrible moment, she decided to take her life. And um, it shook our group of mama bears to the core. And it kind of enraged a lot of us to think this girl is now going to grow up without her mom mm-hmm. because of a situation that really, you know, doesn't need to be this way. So, so we sat down and I wrote a film treatment um, and sent it to some other moms at TCAP. And they said, yeah, you know, we got to do a film. We got to raise awareness. So Six years ago, we started filming. Uh, one of our founders, um, one by the name of Aurora Richards, her and her daughter, Lexi Richards, are, are huge EDS advocates, um, said, you know, we just watched this film called Under Our Skin, and it's about chronic Lyme disease. I think you need to contact the director because it looks like they have a lot of similarities to what we have in terms of patients struggling to be believed and being unable to get care. And the film goes on to talk about the medical controversy, what happens when doctors don't agree or don't agree in treatments and what happens to the patients when they fall into the cracks or what I call the margins of medicine. So sure enough, I, I wrote to the director and I sent him our information and just said, you know, there's this kind of unspoken epidemic. There are these young kids who cannot seem to get access to care. They're going from doctor to doctor. The parents are being labeled as doctor shopping. A lot of these families are getting investigated and then their, their parents are losing custody of the children. 
you know, something needs to be done. We need to reform the medical system. We need to reform the legal system. We need to raise a flag that Child Protective Services is not the place to figure out these cases. They're not equipped to. And he called me back and he said, <laughs> um, I've never had someone call and give me an entire documentary because, you know, we had a list of physicians who were working these cases and lawyers and everything. And he said, I'm in. So six years ago, we started filming and started following families. And I'm sad to report that, you know, since we've been filming, we have lost two of our subjects. But as we were filming their struggles to access the medical care, they were also having investigation and custody issues. So the film kind of took a turn. Um, it kind of started as let's talk about why it's so hard to get care. And now the film is covering a little bit deeper into why these families being flagged. You know, what are the problems with the system that are creating these opportunities for these families to be to be questioned? So this film has been a real uphill climb from the beginning. It's a topic that, you know, there's nothing more important in the world than protecting children. The work that these doctors do is so important. And God forbid you get it wrong, right? But on the other side, there's a human story. There's families with sick kids who are being labeled as child abusers and losing their lives over it. They're losing their credibility. They're losing their ability to get medical care. And, and, you know, a lot of times when these cases are resolved and, you know, so far they always have been, in my experience that I've worked with, you know, there's never an apology. There's never a sorry. You know, people look at you differently forever now that you've been accused of being a child abuser. So for that reason, the film, you know, we, we kept pushing and raising money, raising money. But it's been a slow, it's been a slow push. So, you know, I'm happy to say we're almost at the finish line. We're trying to raise finishing funds. Um, we have a donation link. It would be amazing. I keep thinking if everyone with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome gave us $20, <laughs> this film would be done. But we're hoping that 2023 is going to be our year because the, this Justina Pelletier's family film just came out. The story of the family that I was talking about, our friend Beata, who took her life, that, their family's film is coming out soon. And if we can get our film done, our film is going to really talk about how this is happening to families and we're hoping it can be a catalyst for change and we're hoping to roll out the film with education seminars that offer CME credits to medical providers and also communication training to try to help promote better understanding for why these families kind of present the way they do you know why are they so stressed why are, why are all these medical kind of overlaps um you know, one of the bigger things that you keep that you brought up and I brought up too is the whole neurodiversity. You know, what we're finding is a lot of these parents, you often have a parent who also has undiagnosed Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, so they might have their own medical issues. Like we have one family who, like me, has a little bit of a voice issue from their EDS. And when you start looking through the paperwork, you know, they're they're questioning kind of the mom's communication style, if you will. And it's like, well, she has a medical reason. We had another mother that had hearing loss. Um, and she was accused of not following up um, on certain things. And, and it's just, you know, it's just interesting to see, you know, there's always two sides to every story and the truth is somewhere in between. But I think it's really important that, that we get this film done and that we show kind of where both sides are coming from so we can get to that in between so we can protect kids. Because on the flip side, and this is the collateral piece that I see, you know, these kids, you know, once you're taken, <laughs> there's not, it's not an easy thing to come back from. And our goal is to focus on hope and healing 
and raise this issue of trauma that these kids are having because this problem exists in medicine. You know, how do we help these kids heal? How do we help these families heal? And, you know, that really is the end goal of the film. So that's, that's a project that is close to my heart that is hopefully going to be coming to fruition this year. Yeah, that's it's a fantastic effort. And we'll include a link with the episode notes if anyone is interested in supporting that project. And yeah, hopefully with this film and the other projects you mentioned coming to the forefront, hopefully there will be, you know, more awareness to this issue because it's absolutely devastating, you know, when I hear about it just as a kind of observer and I can't imagine what it's like for you and the others working at TCAP who are really on the front lines of this issue. It's just, it's incredibly sad. And, you know, it's something I think about looking back on my own life. I mean, people with Ehlers-Danlos bruise easily. And, you know, I certainly had a lot of like small injuries as a kid. And, you know, I, I feel lucky to have not kind of fallen into that, this situation back then, but I can certainly relate. And it seems like something that's a huge risk for this community in general. And so I really, really respect that you're bringing attention to this issue and trying to think of ways to respectfully educate people on both sides of this issue and kind of look for that common ground and, and you know, focus on what we can do to help children to heal and to, you know, hopefully avoid these situations as much as possible because they are incredibly tragic. And I heard about that story that you mentioned as well. There was a great article, a very detailed article about that that came out this year. And it was good to see that getting attention and awareness, but it's still just an incredibly heartbreaking story and loss for that family and a loss for the whole community. And I assume it has to have ripple effects. I wonder if that factors into parents' minds when they're thinking about getting care for their children, you know, what kind of questions they're going to be asked. And, you know, these conditions are hard enough to deal with without, you know, having to deal with skepticism that's ultimately rooted in a lack of knowledge and awareness about these conditions and their co-occurring conditions, like you said, with the vocal issues or hearing problems and kind of the other things that can be a part of this. And it's something I think about a lot, like, in terms of accessibility, like, are there ways to more proactively kind of address learning differences and the physical challenges that we have to have these things be more a part of important conversations like medical conversations or conversations with employers or schools? So the onus isn't as much on the individuals to have to be explaining every part of their physicality while they're doing basic things like trying to get medical treatment because this is just an incredibly complex labyrinth kind of without factoring in the fact that some people you know have absolutely uh, or very little awareness or sometimes even incorrect knowledge about these conditions making such critically important decisions in people's lives and and it's funny it is a very complex labyrinth and you know the film director I keep talking about I haven't even mentioned his name but it's Andy Abrahams Wilson. And Andy Wilson um, is such a talented storyteller and a very compassionate kind of act, social activist. And two of his films, including Under Our Skin, were nominated, shortlisted for Academy Awards. So I feel confident that he is the right person to tell our story because the story is extremely complicated and there are so many levels to it. But, you know, one of the things I'm actually dealing right with right now with one of the the families that I know is, you know, how do you tell this story? And how do you tell it in a way that people recognize that it's a tragic problem, but that there are solutions and there are hope 
there are ways to fix it. And one of the challenges I find is that, you know, sometimes you do have parents who not only have their own medical issues, but they may also be on the spectrum or they may have financial hardships or they may have a lot of times divorce, right? Children of sick, sick children, parents have higher divorce rates. And, and some of those are kind of human factors also that can kind of muddy the waters on how a person presents to the outside world, let alone, you know, in a, in a stressful medical situation. Um, so yeah, so when you talk about the, the Kowalski case, um, Maya Kowalski is the, is the girl's name, you know, it's never lost on me that this is a family who had a child that was living with, you know, pain that ranks higher on the amputation level. I'm sorry, higher than amputation on the McGill pain scale, saw that there was a medication that could help their daughter's pain, made a parental decision to go get treatment, and then was penalized, you know, under the law for making a parental decision. And I, I kind of think of this film as kind of at the intersection of medicine and parenting and law and psychology and rare disease. And like, there's just so many intersections here, mm-hmm. which I think is why it's so important that, that the story be told. Absolutely. And that is incredibly tragic that these parents were being proactive and trying to find solutions for their daughter and the just immense sort of cosmic tragedy of the fact that they were a few years ahead of the curve. Because like, as you mentioned, you know, now ketamine is getting, you know, a lot more attention. There's ketamine clinics springing up all over the place. And in a very short span of time, ketamine has gone from something that doctors thought of as being an anesthesia, you know, drug for surgery, and kind of that's it. And to now these new applications for it, and parents, you know, should not be penalized for using their resources and their time to try to, you know, help their children, especially when, you know, they found a physician that, you know, thinks this is an appropriate treatment, it seems like that's something that should be hashed out physician to physician and but yet the parents are often you know right in the middle of this and trying to navigate all of it and it's just it's incredibly difficult and sad but it's it's incredibly inspiring what your group is able to do and that you keep forging ahead despite being in these very tragic circumstances thank you appreciate it well donna thank you so much for joining us today we are so very appreciative of your time and of your dedication to EDS, hypermobility, and complex pain. Your contribution is is exceptional, and we we really hope that your your group continues to forge ahead. And you know, hopefully, this project will get completed and, and raise awareness for these critically important issues. Thank you so much, Carrie, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about it um, and all the awareness that you bring through this podcast um, that I know helps so many people. So, thank you. Oh, thanks very much. Well, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. As always, feel free to reach out. Thanks to all the listeners who have reached out in the past. I really enjoyed speaking with all of you and see you next time. Bye.